1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps on reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You see the central narrative the fiction that it is we are americans while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election the founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job i tell you what we are in a truth emergency right now this is the end game It's Friday, March 1st, 2024, the 1136th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. All right. Now, many times on the show over the last few years, we have talked about limited hangouts and we have talked about slow rollouts, slow disclosures and the importance of trying to figure out when a narrative is finally divulged to the mainstream after weeks or months or years of it being talked about in this community, understanding the truth about some issue the public hasn't been exposed to at all, whether that disclosure, the divulging of these new facts is done to shine light on the truth in a search for a fuller truth, or whether it's done to give people what they need in order to get them to ignore that bigger truth or to simply move on. A couple years ago, we talked about what I think is kind of a quintessential example of all this when the Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen came out to tell her story to CBS News. Most people don't go to the mainstream media to do their whistleblowing. And what she gave up to CBS News was information that a lot of people had known for years. And it wasn't one of those things that people knew for years and couldn't talk about. It was one of those things that people had known for years And that was widely talked about. She was disclosing information on the psychological effects of these social media apps and specifically talking about how destructive they could be for the self-image of young girls and how the use of and the addiction to these social media apps was leading to a spike in suicide rates among young girls and leading to anxiety and depression and the rest. And I have absolutely no doubt that's true. It should probably be a bigger topic of conversation. Not that anyone would actually relieve themselves of their addictions. It's awfully hard to prevent children from using these devices when their parents are addicted to them, too. I feel like we might reach a point 15 or 20 years down the line where people are discussing being raised in a home of social media addicts in the same way that my generation might have discussed being raised in a home of alcoholics or drug addicts. It's an important discussion, particularly as the social media apps continue to get more invasive. Raheem Kassam from the National Pulse was on War Room this week talking about TikTok and how the selfie camera on your phone basically analyzes your facial response When viewing certain content, they have an algorithm analyzing the way your eye movements react to what you're seeing on the screen. They can tell in ways you might not be able to tell what your true response to a piece of content is, and then they can decide whether to feed you more content like that, or perhaps stop showing you content like that, depending on what their goals are. And we are convinced that the goal is always to capture more of your attention. And that's certainly true, but the goals go beyond that because of course they have a bigger agenda. They want to capture your attention and then they want to use that attention for something. And in the old paradigm, we always thought, well, they need more eyes on their advertisers so they can make more money. If only it was that simple. Now there's no doubt that people en masse are starting to learn about these problems. And Mike Benz's interview on Tucker Carlson was enlightening to a lot of people. It's a great benefit that that exists out in the world and can be shared so people can come to better understand issues surrounding censorship in this country. But that conversation itself is four years old, at least. I'm certainly not claiming to be ahead of Mike Benz on this issue. But we were talking about defeat disinfo in the middle of 2020, and the military technology that was redeployed against American citizens in order to propagandize them and censor them. And likewise, with the Francis Hagen disclosures, the stuff that she came out and said in 2021 or 2022, whenever that was, had already been reported widely years before. a man named Tristan Harris. Used to be a guest on the very popular podcast of Sam Harris of the intellectual dark web. So what does it mean for a so-called whistleblower to interview with 60 Minutes on CBS broadcast to the whole nation and then sit down to give her testimony in a hearing before Congress when everything she's divulging has already been publicly available information on pretty popular platforms for five years prior. Is it a limited hangout or is it an info op designed to make sure that everybody across the country knows these apps are a problem in this specific way? Just lock that fact in. Even if you don't pay attention to public events at all, somehow this little fact will reach you. Now, I'm more than happy to be optimistic about these things and to accept that positive explanation. I will carry that forward and look for more hints that that is the right interpretation. But often with these things, it's the last we hear about any of it. Hagen wrote a memoir called The Power of One as if she was bringing down the whole corrupt social media industry as a result of her whistleblowing. It was not a big seller. It has like 74 ratings on Amazon. She did a couple podcast appearances and she hasn't really made a headline in the last three years. Amusingly, Francis Hoggins' revelations were actually called the Facebook files, a perfect preview to the Twitter files. And the Twitter files are another one of those examples. Is this a limited hangout? Is this a cover-up? Are they giving away a little bit of the bad stuff to hide all the rest of the bad stuff, give the people enough so that they feel like their suspicions have been validated. They knew there was something wrong there. They're being told now, yes, indeed, there was something wrong there. And everybody gets riled up for a week or two or three or four. And then the energy dissipates. Everyone moves on to something else. And it's like those revelations never even happened. Now, oftentimes we assume in these instances that they are divulging some of the truth in support of maintaining a much bigger lie. But the truth is all they're really doing is switching the story to something else, hoping that the public at large will believe the new version and accept that. They'll think they can't be lying to us this time. This is the exact thing they didn't want us to know. And then, of course, we can get into a conversation about narrative versus actual and whether the most important truth to be focused on is the narrative truth itself anyway. Whether or not what they're telling us is true, it is true that they are telling us this thing. And in issues where we cannot know the truth value of the underlying claim they're making, we can at least attempt to analyze the story they are telling us. And so with that in mind, I want to talk about a couple of stories that started off the week and ended the week in relation to the so-called war between Russia and Ukraine. And I want to start by going through the New York Times article from Adam Entis called The Spy War, How the CIA Secretly Helps Ukraine fight Putin. But before that, I just want to take a look at Adam Entis for just a moment. Because this is not Adam Entis's first rodeo. This is not his first limited hangout. Last year my friend Garrett Ziegler, the founder of the Marco Polo Research Group, who produced the report on the Biden laptop, Entis published a piece in the Times on December twenty second of last year. The headline was Hunter Biden text cited in impeachment inquiry is not what GOP suggests. Ziegler commented Entis is who the deep state trots out when they're backed up against a wall. Kanakoa the Great put together a collage of Adam Entis headlines. Might as well read as a resume of limited hangout ops he's run for the regime. Kanakoa writes Adam Entis. The New York Times reporter behind the recent CIA press release on the Ukraine war fervently promoted the Russia collusion hoax at the Washington Post. He baselessly slandered Trump, Flynn, Kushner, Prince and others, fraudulently alleging they were Russian puppets in numerous articles, shamelessly lying to the American people. And he has some quotes here from the headlines. Blackwater founder held secret Seychelles meeting to establish Trump-Putin back channel. Another Russian ambassador told Moscow that Kushner wanted secret communications channel with Kremlin. Another National Security Advisor Flynn discussed sanctions with Russian ambassador, despite denials, officials say. Secret CIA assessment says Russia was trying to help Trump win White House. Justice Department warned White House that Flynn could be vulnerable to Russian blackmail, officials say. How does one seamlessly transition from promoting the Russian collusion hoax to authoring a CIA press release on the Ukraine war for The Washington Post and The New York Times? It seems weird, doesn't it, that our paper of record has this guy writing their most important news articles? Do the people running the Times not realize that Trump-Russia collusion was a hoax? And it's not like he just made a mistake. They didn't get the story wrong. They participated in a propaganda operation designed as part of a coup. They were subverting the government of the United States of America and the American election process and then the administration of a duly elected president, and he hasn't been fired or demoted. He hasn't been relegated to the mailroom. He's still writing the leading stories for the Sunday version of The New York Times. And as we get started here, I think maybe the best way to see this is as the most literary possible version of the best possible explanation for why something terrible was actually really good. Here we go. Nestled in a dense forest, the Ukrainian military base appears abandoned and destroyed. Its command center, a burned-out husk, a casualty of a Russian missile barrage early in the war. Oh, so sad. But that is above ground. Not far away, a discreet passageway descends to a subterranean bunker where teams of Ukrainian soldiers track Russian spy satellites and eavesdrop on conversations between Russian commanders. On one screen, a red line followed the route of an explosive drone threading through Russian air defenses from a point in central Ukraine to a target in the Russian city of Rostov. The underground bunker, built to replace the destroyed command center in the months after Russia's invasion, is a secret nerve center of Ukraine's military. Oh, okay. So they built an underground bunker after Russia destroyed their command center. Damn. Russia destroyed our command center with an early missile barrage. What we need to do in response is build an underground bunker right next to it. Now, hey. I don't know if that is complete and total bullshit, but we're not off to a good start. and It's going to get worse. There is also one more secret. The base is almost fully financed and partly equipped by the CIA. 110 percent, General Sergei Dvoritsky, a top intelligence commander, said in an interview at the base. Now entering the third year of a war that is claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. The intelligence partnership between Washington and Kiev is a linchpin of Ukraine's ability to defend itself. The CIA and other American intelligence agencies provide intelligence for targeted missile strikes, track Russian troop movements, and help support spy networks. Now, it's worth noting that the day this article came out, There were also headlines, including in the New York Times, saying that only 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers had been killed. He accused Putin of lying about the numbers, even though far higher numbers were also in the American military documents that were somehow leaked last year on a discord channel by a 21 year old national guardsman. Now, to be fair, Adamentis said the war claimed hundreds of thousands of lives, obviously not all Ukrainian soldiers. He could be talking about Russian soldiers too. Maybe Russian soldiers and the very brave Ukrainian civilians who were slaughtered by those Russian soldiers make up the rest of those hundreds of thousands, because of course we have to trust the comedic actor in Ukraine that it is only thirty-one thousand Ukrainian soldiers who were killed. But either way, it would be nice if the New York Times could clarify and tell us which one of these numbers was legitimate and true and how they know that number to be true. Because otherwise, we are left to assume that they're just making up whatever numbers they want in order to tell the story they need to tell, like with our election results. But let's get back to this so-called intelligence partnership between the United States of America and the stronghold of the global regime's worldwide crime network in Ukraine. But the partnership is no wartime creation, according to Adam Entis of the New York Times, nor is Ukraine the only beneficiary. It took root a decade ago, coming together in fits and starts under three very different U.S. presidents, pushed forward by key individuals who often took daring risks. It has transformed Ukraine, whose intelligence agencies were long seen as thoroughly compromised by Russia, into one of Washington's most important intelligence partners against the Kremlin today. Okay, so the CIA has been operating in Ukraine for a decade. Well, what happened a decade ago that convinced the CIA to be there on the ground? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We overthrew Ukraine's government. That was the Obama administration with Vice President Joe Biden and Under Secretary of State Victoria Newland and John McCain and Lindsey Graham. Weren't they there supporting the Ukrainian Nazis, whom mainstream commentators like Tucker Carlson call nationalists? As if the key to their ideology is supporting the nation of Ukraine, a nation that quite literally did not exist when that ideology began. I mean, for sure, Adam Entis is going to give us an explanation of what happened back there right now. Oh, oh, he's not going to do it right now. Anyway, maybe he'll do it later. The listening post in the Ukrainian forest is part of a CIA supported network of spy bases. Constructed in the past eight years that includes 12 secret locations along the russian border before the war the ukrainians proved themselves to the americans by collecting intercepts that helped prove russia's involvement in the 2014 downing of a commercial jetliner malaysia airlines flight 17 The Ukrainians also helped the Americans go after the Russian operatives who meddled in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Now, I'm going to repeat one of those sentences. Listen and see if you hear anything unusual. Before the war, the Ukrainians proved themselves to the Americans by collecting intercepts that helped prove Russia's involvement in the 2014 downing of a commercial jetliner. Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. Now, that's strange. They intercepted communications, and those communications are proof of who downed this plane. You know, the same way that Alexei Navalny and that guy from Bellingcat proved that Vladimir Putin poisoned Alexei Navalny through a series of prank phone calls, getting the person on the other end of the phone to admit what they've done. And wait a second, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, we were just talking about that two weeks ago. Oh, yeah, we were talking about that in relation to Bellingcat. And if you head on over to the Bellingcat entry in Wikipedia, you'll see that there is an entire section devoted to Bellingcat's work on this exact flight on 17 July 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. Passenger flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was shot down while flying over eastern Ukraine. All 283 passengers and 15 crew members died after the Boeing 777 was hit by a burst of, quote, high energy objects. In a press conference, Russian officials said Ukrainian forces had destroyed the flight and presented radar data, expert testimony and a satellite image. The radar data that showed another aircraft in the vicinity of MH-17 was debunked as falling debris from MH-17 by experts. Experts debunked it. Thank goodness we finally know the truth. A man claiming to be a Spanish air traffic controller in Kyiv stated in interviews that two Ukrainian fighter jets followed the Malaysian plane. The Spanish embassy later said, that there was no Spanish air traffic controller at either of Kiev's airports. The satellite image showed an aircraft firing on the airliner, but Bellingcat exposed the photo as a composite of Google Images, with the Malaysian airline logo even being misplaced. On 9 November 2014, the Bellingcat MH17 investigation team published a report titled MH17, source of the separatists Buk, based on evidence from open sources, primarily social media. The report links a Buk missile launcher that was filmed and photographed in Eastern Ukraine on 17 July to the downing of the MH 17 flight in June, 2015, Bellingcat published evidence that Russia had used Adobe Photoshop to manipulate satellite images of the MH 17 disaster. A December 2017 article published by Bellingcat cited a quote from the 2017 British Intelligence and Security Committee report in which a British secret intelligence service source had stated, quote, we know beyond any reasonable doubt that the Russian military supplied and subsequently recovered the missile launcher, which shot down MH17. So it's not there at all. Russia supplied it and then went and recovered it. Russia has it. We can never get our hands on the murder weapon, so to speak. In July 2019, Bellingcat released a six part podcast series produced by Novel Audio, taking an in-depth look at their investigation. So Bellingcat to the rescue again. It happens to be Russia's fault again. And it sounds like they've got themselves another open and shut case, just like Putin's poisoning of Alexei Navalny. That much of the world believes right now, despite the fact that there's absolutely no proof, it's true. But let's get back to the New York Times, because Ukrainian intelligence was able to establish their relationship with the CIA based on the contributions they made to apparently Bellingcat's investigation. I guess the Ukrainians, they captured these communications... And did such a good job that they were rewarded with the CIA controlling their country. And thank goodness, I mean, we can't just have non-existent Russian missile launchers taking down passenger planes over Ukraine. So it's a good thing that the CIA had a reason to be there, you know, I mean, after they overthrew the country and all. Usually they just go in and overthrow a country and then totally leave it to the people of that country to establish their own government. But thank goodness there was this whole plane explosion thing that allowed them to stay longer. Back to Adam Entis. Around 2016, the CIA began training an elite Ukrainian commando force known as Unit 2245 which captured Russian drones and communications gear so that CIA technicians could reverse engineer them and crack Moscow's encryption systems. One officer in the unit was Budinov, now the general leading Ukraine's military intelligence. That was also the guy we mentioned a few days ago who said it looked like Alexei Navalny died of a blood clot and indicated natural causes. And the CIA also helped train a new generation of Ukrainian spies who operated inside Russia across Europe and in Cuba and other places where the Russians have a large presence. The relationship is so ingrained that CIA officers remained at a remote location in western Ukraine when the Biden administration evacuated U.S. personnel in the weeks before Russia invaded in February 2022. During the invasion, the officers relayed critical intelligence, including where Russia was planning strikes and which weapon systems they would use. And again, thank goodness the CIA stuck around to totally protect those brave Ukrainians and their very sovereign borders without them. Who knows what successes Russia might be having on the battlefield right now? And you have to wonder if Adam Entis thinks that the people reading this article Believe that Ukraine is really winning or really could win or has been winning at any point in the last two years. Ukraine has not been winning at any point. There have been no good moments for Ukraine. All of the things sold to Western audiences as good moments in this war on Ukraine's part have proven false. Without them, There would have been no way for us to resist the Russians or to beat them, said Ivan Bakunov, who was then head of Ukraine's domestic intelligence agency, the SBU. And then, no kidding, right beneath that, they have a picture of what looks to be a blown-up tank and a human body both covered in snow. The body looks like the head might even be severed, and the caption is, A dead Russian soldier in Kharkiv the day after the 2022 invasion, because it's important when you are telling an audience of child brains that Ukraine is winning, that you immediately show them a picture of a blown up tank and a body that you will call Russian, because without the picture, there's no way they would have believed it. The details of this intelligence partnership, many of which are being disclosed by the New York Times for the first time, have been a closely guarded secret for a decade. But I mean, not really, right? I mean, at different times over the last 10 years, we have either been funding Nazi battalions in Ukraine or we have been banning the Congress from funding Nazi battalions in Ukraine. Was everyone just assuming that American intelligence had no involvement in this situation at all? There's an extensive history of reporting on all this. One article that comes up immediately, TheNation.com, January 14th, 2016, headline, Congress has removed a ban on funding neo-Nazis from its year-end spending bill. We don't have to pretend this is all being discovered for the first time. In more than 200 interviews, current and former officials in Ukraine, the United States, and Europe described a partnership that nearly foundered from mutual distrust before it steadily expanded, turning Ukraine into an intelligence-gathering hub that intercepted more Russian communications than the CIA station in Kiev could initially handle. Many of the officials spoke on condition of anonymity, to discuss intelligence and matters of sensitive diplomacy. Now these intelligence networks are more important than ever, as Russia is on the offensive and Ukraine is more dependent on sabotage and long-range missile strikes that require spies far behind enemy lines. And they are increasingly at risk. If Republicans in Congress end military funding to Kiev, the CIA may have to scale back. Oh, no! We can't have that. By the way, if Ukrainian intelligence operatives and officials are working with CIA operatives and officials, and those CIA operatives are working with MI6 operatives, and those MI6 operatives are working with Mossad operatives, and all of those operatives are working with all of the Five Eyes operatives, then doesn't Ukraine have the same intelligence that all the Five Eyes countries and Israel and any other regime proxy state would have? And if it just so happens that U.S. intelligence is directing the actions of Ukrainian intelligence and Ukrainian intelligence is operating in Russia, what does that say about our provocation of Russia? Like, for instance, let's localize it. Let's bring it back to the United States of America. We know that there are hundreds of thousands Of Chinese intelligence assets here in the United States, CCP assets, old regime, genuine Chinese communists, the Chinese evil twin infiltrated in our universities, our businesses throughout our society. Do you see that as an act of aggression? How do you perceive it? If you understand this to be a time of war? And what would that then say about what's going on with these Ukrainian intelligence people deep behind Russian lines? And maybe another way to put it is this. If you were Vladimir Putin or any of the nations allied with Russia, would you care more about the fact that these people are deep behind Russian lines or would you simply accept the public narrative from regime figures That United States troops are not on the ground. We are actually not involved in that war at all. We are just funding them and arming them and giving them intelligence and targeting and mercenaries. But we're not really involved. It's not our war, despite the fact that too many of our politicians are wearing Ukraine flag lapel pins. To try to reassure Ukrainian leaders, William J. Burns, the CIA director, made a secret visit to Ukraine last Thursday, his 10th visit since the invasion. Now, that's very interesting. William Burns has been flying around the world making sure that elections are properly rigged as he did in Brazil. You'd have to imagine it's probably not worth it to even bother with Russia's election in two weeks. From the outset, a shared adversary, Vladimir V. Putin of Russia, brought the CIA and its Ukrainian partners together. You see, it's Putin's fault for even having the CIA and Ukraine meet. He didn't know it was a bad idea to host a dating show where various regime linked intelligence operations could partner with this fledgling Ukrainian intelligence operation. Obsessed with losing Ukraine to the West, Mr. Putin had regularly interfered in Ukraine's political system, hand picking leaders he believed would help keep Ukraine within Russia's orbit. Yet each time it backfired, driving protesters into the streets, Russia was dictating politics in Ukraine, not the United States. You see, not George Soros, despite two color revolutions in the country. Mr. Putin was interfering with Ukraine's political system, and so the CIA had to come rescue Ukraine from its neighbor because it was just the right thing to do. Mr. Putin has long blamed Western intelligence agencies for manipulating Kyiv and sowing anti-Russia sentiment in Ukraine. Toward the end of 2021, according to a senior European official, Mr. Putin was weighing whether to launch his full-scale invasion when he met with the head of one of Russia's main spy services, who told him that the CIA, together with Britain's MI6, were controlling Ukraine and turning it into a beachhead for operations against Moscow. But the Times investigation found that Mr. Putin and his advisors misread a critical dynamic. The CIA didn't push its way into Ukraine. U.S. officials were often reluctant to fully engage, fearing that Ukrainian officials could not be trusted and worrying about provoking the Kremlin. You see that? The United States and the CIA, they resisted Ukraine's advances for as long as they could, but the romance of it all just took hold. Yet a tight circle of Ukrainian intelligence officials assiduously courted the CIA and gradually made themselves vital to the Americans. In 2015, General Valery Kondratyuk, then Ukraine's head of military intelligence, arrived at a meeting with the CIA's deputy station chief and without warning, handed over a stack of top secret files. And that's when the CIA and Ukrainian intelligence officials knew that their relationship was meant to be. You've lost that loving feeling, just started playing like from the air. And as they gazed into each other's eyes, they realized at long last that even though they knew it was wrong, nothing was going to keep them apart. That initial tranche of, by the way, very, very real documents. This all definitely happened. That initial tranche contained secrets about the Russian Navy's northern fleet, including detailed information about the latest Russian nuclear submarine designs. Before long, teams of CIA officers were regularly leaving his office with backpacks full of documents. We understood that we needed to create the conditions of trust. General Kondratyuk said as the partnership deepened after 2016, the Ukrainians became impatient with what they considered Washington's undue caution and began staging assassinations and other lethal operations, which violated the terms. The White House thought the Ukrainians had agreed to Infuriated officials in Washington threatened to cut off support, but they never did. The relationships only got stronger and stronger because both sides saw value in it. And the U.S. embassy in Kiev, our station there, the operation out of Ukraine became the best source of information, signals, and everything else on Russia," said a former senior American official. We couldn't get enough of it. This is the untold story of how it all happened. <laughs> This is so embarrassing for the New York Times. It kind of reminds me of that book that O.J. Simpson published called If I Did It. Like, I definitely, definitely didn't murder my wife. But if I did, here's how it would have happened. So a former senior American official, former senior American official, That is the description of this otherwise anonymous person who is relaying all of this information to Adam Entis, the limited hangout guy of the New York Times. But let's pause for just one second, because they just told us that the Ukrainians became impatient. Washington wouldn't let them do the things they felt they needed to do. And so what did they begin doing? Staging assassinations and other lethal operations which violated the terms the White House thought thought the Ukrainians had agreed to. So we are supposed to believe that Ukrainian intelligence and the White House via the CIA agreed that the Ukrainians weren't going to do anything terrible. But the Ukrainians, they just got antsy. They couldn't help themselves. They had to go do terrible things. And so they did. And the White House They expressed their deepest disappointments. How could you do this to me? You promised, they said. And Ukraine was just like, "Huh? I learned it by watching you. And the White House was so mad, so mad. They threatened to leave so many times. They had all their stuff in a suitcase. And Ukraine was like, don't go. Don't go, man. Don't go. You know, you love us. You know, you can't leave us. And the White House is like, yeah, you're right. I have to stay. I mean, Ukrainian intelligence. This is a quote, by the way, from the former senior American official became the best source of information, signals and everything else on Russia. We couldn't get enough of it. The CIA's partnership in Ukraine can be traced back to two phone calls on the night of February 24th, 2014, eight years to the day before Russia's full-scale invasion. Millions of Ukrainians had just overrun the country's pro-Kremlin government, and the president, Viktor Yanukovych, and his spy chiefs had fled to Russia. In the tumult, a fragile pro-Western government quickly took power. The government's new spy chief, Valentin Nalivichenko, arrived at the headquarters of the domestic intelligence agency and found a pile of smoldering documents in the courtyard. Inside, many of the computers had been wiped or were infected with Russian malware. It was empty, no lights, no leadership. Nobody was there, Mr. Nalivachenko said in an interview. He went to an office and called the CIA station chief and the local head of MI6. It was near midnight, but he summoned them to the building, asked for help in rebuilding the agency from the ground up, and promised a three way partnership. That's how it all started, Mr. Nalivichenko said. A three way partnership? Well, someone is going to end up feeling left out. That is all I know. That situation never works, it's unnatural. Now, you may have noticed that Adam Entis still has not mentioned at any point the American involvement in the overthrow of Ukraine's government in 2014 that led to the ethnic civil war that's been waged in the Donbass ever since. And of course, immediately after that paragraph, they have to show you a picture of Independent Square in Kiev with a caption reaffirming that popular protests ousted the pro-Russia president at the time. It wasn't a coup led by the American State Department. No, 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 no. no. It was a popular protest against Russia that ousted Ukraine's government. The situation quickly became more dangerous. Mr. Putin seized Crimea. His agents fomented separatist rebellions that would become a war in the country's east. Ukraine was on war footing and Mr. Nalivichenko appealed to the CIA for overhead imagery and other intelligence to help defend its territory. So Mr. Putin seized Crimea and his agents fomented separatist rebellions. Putin was not only responsible for the government in Ukraine needing to be overturned in 2014. Of course, that was Putin's fault, too. He was also responsible, of course, for Setting up Ukraine and the United States for hosting that dating show. And now he's being blamed for seizing Crimea, despite the fact that Crimea has had referenda to become part of Russia, as have all those regions in the Donbass, where he also started a war by creating a separatist movement there. Ukraine was responsible for nothing. Russia was responsible for everything. With violence escalating, an unmarked U.S. government plane touched down at an airport in Kiev, carrying John O. Brennan, then the director of the CIA. He told Mr. Nalivaychenko that the CIA was interested in developing a relationship, but only at a pace the agency was comfortable with, according to U.S. and Ukrainian officials. And this is like a few years back when they started trying to have college students fill out consent forms. Is it okay if I take off your shirt? Yes, please sign here. They were going to take it slow and make sure everything was done with full consent. I don't want to do anything if you don't want to do it. To the CIA, the unknown question was how long Mr. Nalivichenko and the pro-Western government would be around. The CIA had been burned before in Ukraine. Very, very sad. Now, I don't know their whole backstory, but having been burned in Ukraine, that's the sort of thing that can make an intelligence agency just go around abusing all of the other countries, just trying to take all of them over and have a relationship by force, not by consent. Sure, the CIA could have been a better man, but you don't know what it's like to be burned in Ukraine, man. Following the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine gained independence and then veered between competing political forces, those that wanted to remain close to Moscow and those that wanted to align with the West. During a previous stint as spy chief, Mr. Nalivichenko started a similar partnership with the CIA, which dissolved when the country swung back toward Russia. (laughs) Oh, well, that's that's crazy. So that Ukrainian spy chief had a partnership with the United States, but then Ukraine realigned with Russia, and now he's back as Ukraine realigns with the United States and the CIA. It's like they just kept working together the whole time. So Ukraine was torn. Who do I side with? But everybody knows that the United States is the best sugar daddy in the entire world, and they've got a sweet tooth, baby. Now, Mr. Brennan explained that to unlock CIA assistance, the Ukrainians had to prove that they could provide intelligence of value to Americans. They also needed to purge Russian spies. The domestic spy agency, the SBU, was riddled with them. Case in point, the Russians quickly learned about Mr. Brennan's supposedly secret visit, The Kremlin's propaganda outlets published a photoshopped image of the CIA director wearing a clown wig and makeup, and he would never do that. That's how you know it was photoshopped. John O. Brennan is a very, very serious man, not the kind of person who would ever dress up in a clown wig or makeup, and there is no way we will ever see pictures of John O. Brennan dressed up like a woman either. He's just not like that, despite the closeness of his relationship with Barack Obama. So the United States was considering taking Ukraine back, but Ukraine had to really show them that things have changed. It's going to be different this time, I promise. Mr. Brennan returned to Washington, where advisors to President Barack Obama were deeply concerned about provoking Moscow. The White House crafted secret rules that infuriated the Ukrainians and that some inside the CIA thought of as handcuffs. The rules barred intelligence agencies from providing any support to Ukraine that could be, quote, reasonably expected, end quote, to have lethal consequences. So Ukraine and the CIA were upset that Barack Obama wasn't allowing them to kill enough Russians, it sounds like. The result was a delicate balancing act. The CIA was supposed to strengthen Ukraine's intelligence agencies without provoking the Russians. The red lines were never precisely clear, which created a persistent tension in the partnership. I told you I didn't like being touched that way. In Kiev, Mr. Nalivichenko picked a longtime aide, General Kondratiuk to serve as head of counterintelligence, and they created a new paramilitary unit that was deployed behind enemy lines to conduct operations and gather intelligence that the CIA or MI6 would not provide to them. Known as the fifth directorate, this unit would be filled with officers born after Ukraine gained independence. They had no connection with Russia, General Kondratiuk said, They didn't even know what the Soviet Union was. And we are supposed to think about all of this on timelines. Once Ukraine became independent from Russia, anyone born after that point wouldn't have any sense of Russia. They wouldn't know anything about the Soviet Union. I mean, how could they? It doesn't even exist anymore. But I mean, I suppose they could be told about it from their parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and older brothers and sisters. Really just everybody else except people born after that could tell them what it was like before. So it's definitely not about timelines. What sort of separation would they actually be looking for? What would separate these people from Russians? Oh, it's just about them hating Russia. Let's just call them nationalists. Let's pretend they're far right. And let's pretend, as Adamantis does, that they were only grouped together based on age. That summer, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, blew up in midair and crashed in eastern Ukraine, killing nearly 300 passengers and crew. The Fifth Directorate produced telephone intercepts and other intelligence within hours of the crash that quickly placed responsibility on Russian-backed separatists. The CIA was impressed and made its first meaningful commitment by providing secure communications gear and specialized training to members of the Fifth Directorate and two other elite units. The Ukrainians wanted fish and we, for policy reasons, Couldn't deliver that fish, said a former U.S. official, referring to intelligence that could help them battle the Russians. But we were happy to teach them how to fish and deliver fly fishing equipment. And if you are trying to get back together with a probably Nazi based intelligence organization that you've fallen out with, the best thing to do is send them fly fishing equipment, you know, for the sportsman in him. So the world knows that Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine blew up this Malaysian passenger jet, killing 300 innocent people, and we know that because the Fifth Directorate and Bellingcat say that's what happened. It's not the CIA or British intelligence who created this story despite being linked with both the Fifth Directorate and Bellingcat, and there's no way that that plane was blown out of the sky by fighter jets, that's all a conspiracy theory. What happened was this. We know that because of Ukrainian intelligence in Bellingcat. And if you can't trust them, who can you trust? In the summer of 2015, Ukraine's President Petro Poroshenko shook up the domestic service and installed an ally to replace Mr. Nalivichenko, the CIA's trusted partner. But the change created an opportunity elsewhere. In the reshuffle, General Kondratyuk was appointed as head of the country's military intelligence agency, known as the HUR, where years earlier he had started his career. It would be an early example of how personal ties, more than policy shifts, would deepen the CIA's involvement in Ukraine. Unlike the domestic agency, the HUR had the authority to collect intelligence outside the country, including in Russia but the Americans had seen little value in cultivating the agency because it wasn't producing any intelligence of value on the Russians and because it was seen as a bastion of Russian sympathizers. Trying to build trust, General Kondratiuk arranged a meeting with his American counterpart at the Defense Intelligence Agency and handed over a stack of secret Russian documents. But senior DIA officials were suspicious and discouraged building closer ties. And I suppose I would be a little miffed, too, if I had given my beloved some fly fishing gear and all I got back was a stack of papers. The general needed to find a more willing partner because consent is everything, guys, in relationships between intelligence agencies. It's one thing to set the stage for some hot IC on IC action, but if you're trying to lay down the foundation for a long term relationship, consent is a necessity. Months earlier, while still with the domestic agency, General Kondratiuk visited the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. In those meetings, he met a CIA officer with a jolly demeanor and a bushy beard who had been tapped to become the next station chief. In Kiev, after a long day of meetings, the CIA took General Kondratyuk to a Washington Capitals hockey match where he and the incoming station chief sat in a luxury box and loudly booed Alex Ovechkin, the team's star player from Russia. Now, why would they do that? Just because he's Russian? That's racist as hell. Putin talks about Western Russophobia and Ukrainian Russophobia. I wonder if that's what he means. Alex Ovechkin is one of the greatest hockey players on the planet. He's one of the greatest of all time. And as a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, myself, a massive Sidney Crosby fan, Alex Ovechkin, if there was a true enemy out there, he's that enemy. But I don't hate him for being Russian, I hate him because he's a rival. That would be like being from Boston and being a Celtics fan and showing up at the stadium and booing players just because they're black. Oh yeah, Boston fans actually still do that all the time. But how ridiculous is this? This is mentioned in a New York Times article. Yeah, we, we agreed to boo the Russian guy because he's Russian. Boo Russia. Root, root, root for the home team unless any of them are Russian. What a weird first date. The Ukrainian intelligence guy comes all the way to America and they take him out to a hockey game so that they can both publicly hate Russia together. How romantic. They should have just stuck with the fishing gear. The station chief had not yet arrived when General Kondratiuk handed over to the CIA the secret documents about the Russian Navy. There's more where this came from, he promised, and the documents were sent off to analysts in Langley. Oh, that little minx, that little tease. How could he? He gets taken out to a hockey match and shared a luxury box and hated Russia together. And all you get is a kiss at the door. You don't even get invited upstairs for a nightcap. Just a little. There's more where that came from. Give me a break. The analysts concluded that the documents were authentic. And after the station chief arrived in Kiev, the CIA became General Kondratyuk's primary partner. My word, this is getting steamy. General Kondratiuk knew he needed the CIA to strengthen his own agency. The CIA thought the general might be able to help Langley, too. It struggled to recruit spies inside Russia because its case officers were under heavy surveillance. It's so sweet. They realized they needed each other. I'm nothing without you, babe. I'm nothing without you either. For a Russian, allowing oneself to be recruited by an American is to commit the absolute ultimate in treachery and treason, General Kondrachiuk said. But for a Russian to be recruited by a Ukrainian, it's just friends talking over a beer. The new station chief, began regularly visiting General Kundratiuk, whose office was decorated with an aquarium where yellow and blue fish, the national colors of Ukraine, swam circles around a model of a sunken Russian submarine. I mean, come on. Adam Entis made that up. Are these fish comms? I mean, what in the world am I even reading? The two men became close, Which drove the relationship between the two agencies. And the Ukrainians gave the new station chief an affectionate nickname Santa Claus. Gosh, that's so original. The guy had a big bushy beard and they called him Santa Claus. Man, what will these clever Ukrainians come up with next? So they're seriously dating each other. They are flying across the Atlantic Ocean back and forth to visit one another. You would think that they would just be able to communicate, but no, long distance relationships never work out. In January 2016, General Kondratiuk flew to Washington for meetings at Scattergood, an estate on the CIA campus in Virginia, where the agency often fets visiting dignitaries. The agency agreed to help the HRU modernize and to improve its ability to intercept Russian military communications. In exchange, General Kondratiuk agreed to share all of the raw intelligence with the Americans. Now the partnership was real. And thank goodness, because once you have stopped using protection and you just start sharing raw intelligence, if you haven't formed a real partnership by that point, well, then you really are just living in sin. Today, the narrow road leading to the secret base is framed by minefields, seated as a line of defense in the weeks after Russia's invasion. The Russian missiles that hit the base had seemingly shut it down, but just weeks later, the Ukrainians returned. With money and equipment provided by the CIA, crews under General Dvoretsky's command began to rebuild, but underground. To avoid detection, they only worked at night and when Russian spy satellites were not overhead. Workers also parked their cars a distance away from the construction site. Man, you gotta wonder why the New York Times is giving away the location of this base after they had hid it from the Russians for so long. In the bunker, General Voretsky pointed to communications equipment and large computer servers, some of which were financed by the CIA. He said his teams were using the base to hack into the Russian military's secure communications networks. This is the thing that breaks into satellites and decodes secret conversations, General Voretsky told a Times journalist on a tour, adding that they were hacking into spy satellites from China and Belarus, too. Another officer placed two recently produced maps on a table as evidence of how Ukraine is tracking Russian activity around the world. The first showed the overhead routes of Russian spy satellites traveling over central Ukraine. The second showed how Russian spy satellites are passing over strategic military installations, including a nuclear weapons facility in the eastern and central United States. Wait a second. Are those Russian sky circles? Have we had Russian sky circles and no one told us that is a travesty? The CIA began sending equipment in 2016 after the pivotal meeting at Scattergood, General Dvoretsky said, providing encrypted radios and devices for intercepting secret enemy communications. Beyond the base, the CIA also oversaw a training program carried out in two European cities to teach Ukrainian intelligence officers how to convincingly assume fake personas and steal secrets in Russia and other countries that are adept at rooting out spies. The program was called Operation Goldfish, which derived from a joke about a Russian-speaking goldfish who offers two Estonians wishes in exchange for its freedom. The punchline was that one of the Estonians bashed the fish's head with a rock, explaining that anything speaking Russian could not be trusted. Thank goodness. This is not a hate movement over in Ukraine. And thank goodness the United States and its intel community aren't supporting this hate movement in Ukraine, just like they're not supporting the hate movement here in the United States directed against Donald Trump and his supporters. And it certainly is a hate movement. This entire article is just fish comms and Russia hate and hot IC on IC action. The Operation Goldfish officers were soon deployed to 12 newly built forward operating bases constructed along the Russian border. From each base, General Kondratyuk said the Ukrainian officers ran networks of agents who gathered intel inside Russia. CIA officers installed equipment at the bases to help gather intelligence and also identified some of the most skilled Ukrainian graduates of the Operation Goldfish program working with them to approach potential Russian sources. These graduates then trained sleeper agents on Ukrainian territory meant to launch guerrilla operations in case of occupation. Now, we will return to the romance novel in just a moment, but I would like to point out a series of articles by a man named Joe Lang, who is part of our Little Badlands Media Collective, He has done a great series on the Badlands Substack. You can find that badlands.substack.com. And the one I'm referencing in particular in this series is an article called School of Assassins and Dictators. And he talks about something called the School of Americas. In this article, he writes, what I've found is that when the CIA is involved, there is a very clear pattern. The CIA installs brutal dictators in very strategic countries and then trains their military and police to brutalize and terrorize their own populations so they can maintain control of governments. These dictators are not only unpopular and completely corrupt, but many are also involved in drug trafficking. The CIA was training Vietnamese death squads and running torture prisons involved in the Phoenix program. The CIA then exported this training around the world. And then he goes into a discussion about the School of Americas. And this is all in a series he does about George H.W. Bush and his role in the CIA. He cites the Wikipedia entry on School of Americas. And again, I encourage you to just check all this out yourself. But he then writes. Bush and the CIA had been training dictators and their military in Latin America using the same program they had used in Vietnam long before Reagan became president. Was it just about fighting global communism? That was the big lie. Bush used fighting communism as the excuse during the Cold War in order to set up proxy governments in very important locations. And then he gets into Colombia and South and Central America. And it is quite clear that these operations never stopped and the playbook never changed. With that in mind, let's take another look at this paragraph in the New York Times article. CIA officers installed equipment at the bases to help gather intelligence and also identified some of the most skilled Ukrainian graduates of the Operation Goldfish program, working with them to approach potential Russian sources. These graduates then trained sleeper agents on Ukrainian territory meant to launch guerrilla operations in case of occupation. It can often take years for the CIA to develop enough trust in a foreign agency to begin conducting joint operations. With the Ukrainians, it had taken less than six months. This new partnership started producing so much raw intelligence about Russia that it had to be shipped to Langley for processing. But the CIA did have red lines. It wouldn't help the Ukrainians conduct offensive, lethal operations. I would do anything for love, but I won't conduct offensive, lethal operations. We made a distinction between intelligence collection operations and things that go boom. A former senior U.S. official said. So once again, absolutely anybody. Honestly, that could be Bill Clinton's deputy secretary of agriculture, and he would qualify as a former senior U.S. official. This is our country in quotes. It was a distinction that grated on the Ukrainians. First, General Kondratyuk was annoyed when the Americans refused to provide satellite images from inside Russia. Soon after, he requested CIA assistance in planning a clandestine mission to send HUR commandos into Russia to plant explosive devices at train depots used by the Russian military. If the Russian military sought to take more Ukrainian territory, Ukrainians could detonate the explosives to slow the Russian advance. So they wanted U.S. help to go inside Russia and plant explosive devices at train depots used by the Russian military, and all of this is supposed to be acceptable because we are to believe that the United States didn't overthrow Ukraine's government in 2014. That was just a popular uprising, and Ukrainian Nazis did not begin an ethnic civil war in the eastern quarter of Ukraine. That was also motivated by Putin. Therefore, it's okay for the U.S. to send Ukrainians into Russia to blow up train stations. Is this something you want the U.S. government doing in your name? Now, I don't know your answer individually, but I'm pretty sure that the American people in general would say no. And that's why they keep this stuff a secret if they tell anyone at all. But it sounds like Adam Entis is letting us know that the relationship might be on the rocks just a little bit. Sounds like the Americans have been seeing someone else. General Kondrachiuk is like, let me see your phone. I want to read your text messages. I know who you've been talking to. And once that sort of jealousy and insecurity emerges in a relationship, it's all downhill. Once that trust has been violated, it's so hard to get it back. When the station chief briefed his superiors, they, quote, lost their minds. As one former official put it, Mr. Brennan, the CIA director, called General Kondratiuk to make certain that mission was canceled and that Ukraine abided by the red lines forbidding lethal operations. General Kondratiuk canceled the mission, but he also took a different lesson. Going forward, we worked to not have discussions about these things with your guys, he said. Late that summer, Ukrainian spies discovered that Russian forces were deploying attack helicopters at an airfield on the Russian-occupied Crimean Peninsula, possibly to stage a surprise attack, or perhaps because Crimea is just part of Russia. General Kondratiuk decided to send a team into Crimea to plant explosives at the airfield so they could be detonated if Russia moved to attack. This time, he didn't ask the CIA for permission. He turned to unit 2245, the commando force that received specialized military training from the CIA's elite paramilitary group known as the ground department. The intent of the training was to teach defensive techniques, but CIA officers understood that without their knowledge, the Ukrainians could use the same techniques in offensive lethal operations. And how about that dual use technology? That's the same excuse they use with their biomedical research. You see, we need to create all of these viruses in order to know how to create the vaccine that is going to save us from these viruses. We're not creating these biological weapons to use as biological weapons. We are creating them to figure out how to defend ourselves from the biological weapons we create. I mean, if you're not willing to stab yourself in the eye how are you ever going to know how to treat someone who has stabbed themselves in the eye? But let's get more serious for just a second because General Kondratyuk is now sending out a team of CIA trained operatives to bomb trains and airplanes. Now, if I didn't know better and I didn't understand that the U.S. would never, ever, ever do anything like this, I might tend to think that it sounds like we're just training terrorists to do terrorism. And the only thing that keeps these incidents from being described, obviously as terrorism, is the fact that they are also being described as military targets. And because Ukraine is painting itself as the victims of a Russian attack, this is even before the very brutal invasion, by the way, all of these activities these attacks on military targets, well, they're all justified in the scope of that war. And thank goodness, because if they weren't, then this would easily be seen as U.S.-backed acts of international terrorism against Russia, and that would change everything. At the time, the future head of Ukraine's military intelligence agency, General Budanov, was a rising star in Unit 2245. He was known for daring operations behind enemy lines and had deep ties to the CIA. The agency had trained him and also taken the extraordinary step of sending him for rehabilitation to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Maryland after he was shot in the right arm during fighting in the Donbass. Man, that's weird, huh? What's with these Ukrainian intelligence operatives being in America so much? I hope they don't have any connections to, like, Charlottesville or J-6 or anything. Disguised in Russian uniforms, then-Lieutenant Colonel Budinov led commandos across a narrow gulf in inflatable speedboats, landing at night in Crimea. But an elite Russian commando unit was waiting for them. The Ukrainians fought back, killing several Russian fighters, including the son of a general before retreating to the shoreline, plunging into the sea, and swimming for hours to Ukrainian-controlled territory. It was a disaster. In a public address, President Putin accused the Ukrainians of plotting a terrorist attack and promised to avenge the deaths of the Russian fighters. There is no doubt we will not let these things pass, he said. Now that does sound exactly like a terrorist attack, and it sounds like Adam Entis is providing a cover story here for what may well have been a targeted killing of a general's son. In Washington, the Obama White House was livid. Joseph R. Biden Jr., then the vice president and a champion of assistance to Ukraine, called Ukraine's president to angrily complain. It causes a gigantic problem, Mr. Biden said in the call, a recording of which was leaked and published online. All I'm telling you, as a friend, is that my making arguments here is a hell of a lot harder now. Some of Mr. Obama's advisers wanted to shut the CIA program down, but Mr. Brennan persuaded them that doing so would be self-defeating, given the relationship was starting to produce intelligence on the Russians as the CIA was investigating Russian election meddling. So the Ukrainians basically went and assassinated a general's son. Vladimir Putin got upset about it. And the heat was turned on the White House, the Obama White House. Now, Barack Obama and Joe Biden had absolutely nothing to do with this terrorist attack. How could they have? John Brennan wouldn't have told them about this in advance because there's no way that John Brennan would have known about this in advance. You see, the CIA and the Obama White House, they had set up red lines with these Ukrainian intelligence operatives who they trained and equipped and funded. And they would never do anything like that. They formed this entire partnership on a basis of consent. And Obama and Brennan were saying, we don't consent. We don't consent. And I guess we're just going to have to take them at their word for that. I mean, John Brennan and Barack Obama, what have they ever lied about? We can trust these people. Oh, wait. Weren't they the guys who absolutely knew about the Clinton campaign setting up the whole Russia hoax and they didn't tell the nation about it. And then they actually worked to make sure that no one would ever find out about it. Gosh, I hope they're not lying this time. Obama was so offended that the Ukrainians they trained had carried out this terrorist attack. He wanted to shut down the whole program. He was ready to break up Barack Obama was even going to take back all his favorite old T-shirts because he just let you borrow them. He never said you could have them. But John Brennan just kept on tugging at his heartstrings. He said, Barack, we can't break up with Ukraine. They mean everything to me. How would I ever get over this? Mr. Brennan got on the phone with General Kondratiuk to again emphasize the red lines. Excuse me, sir. You have violated my standards of consent multiple times now. And if you violate them again, oh, I might actually leave this time. The general was upset. This is our country. He responded, according to a colleague, it's our war and we've got to fight. The blowback from Washington cost General Kondratiuk his job, but Ukraine didn't back down. One day after General Kondratyuk was removed, a mysterious explosion in the Russian-occupied city of Donetsk, in eastern Ukraine, ripped through an elevator carrying a senior Russian separatist commander named Arsen Pavlov, known by his nom de guerre, Motorola. The CIA soon learned that the assassins were members of the Fifth Directorate, the spy group that received CIA training. Ukraine's domestic intelligence agency even handed out Commemorative patches to those involved, each one stitched with the word lift, the British term for an elevator. So, another terrorist attack. And Adamantis is telling us that's okay, you see, the man who was killed was actually a senior Russian separatist commander, not a Ukrainian who was resisting the ethnic civil war, but a Russian separatist commander. Again, some of Mr. Obama's advisers were furious, but they were lame ducks. The presidential election pitting Donald J. Trump against Hillary Rodham Clinton was three weeks away, and the assassinations continued. A team of Ukrainian agents set up an unmanned, shoulder-fired rocket launcher in a building in the occupied territories. It was directly across from the office of a rebel commander named Mikhail Toltsik, better known as Givi. Using a remote trigger, they fired the launcher as soon as Givi entered his office, killing him, according to U.S. and Ukrainian officials. A shadow war was now in overdrive. The Russians used a car bomb to assassinate the head of Unit 2245, the elite Ukrainian commando force. The commander, Colonel Maxim Shapoval, was on his way to a meeting with CIA officers in Kiev when his car exploded. At the colonel's wake, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, stood in mourning beside the CIA station chief. Later, CIA officers and their Ukrainian counterparts toasted Colonel Shapoval with whiskey shots. For all of us, General Kondratiuk said, it was a blow. Now, I honestly hate that I sound like I am beating up on America in some way. By talking about the intelligence community, an old codename renegade and the fake president right now in such insulting terms. But they are launching terrorist attacks. That is what The New York Times is telling us. The intelligence agents they trained in Ukraine, these little battalions, are carrying out terrorist attacks in Russian territory or in these independent republics who were the targets of this ethnic civil war. And I'm not trying to take Russia's side, but the New York Times is telling us what they're doing. And this is all in the run up to the 2016 election, where one of the key issues, at least in the collective mindset, is that Russia wants Donald Trump to be president and the Obama and Clinton regimes will do absolutely anything they can to stop that. This is the late summer of 2016. The Russia collusion hoax was in full bloom. The meetings in the Oval Office had already happened. John Brennan, who is directing these Ukrainian intelligence units and covering for them when they cross these supposed red lines and carry out lethal offensive operations on their own, he's doing that while Russia is being blamed for helping to elect Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is being painted as a man who is disloyal to the United States of America. He is actually asking Putin for his help to help him rig this election. Obama and Brennan and the rest are lying to the nation while directing terrorist attacks abroad. That is what we are being told here. The election of Mr. Trump in November 2016 put the Ukrainians and their CIA partners on edge. Mr. Trump praised Mr. Putin and dismissed Russia's role in election interference. He was suspicious of Ukraine and later tried to pressure its president, Volodymyr Zelensky, to investigate his Democratic rival, Mr. Biden, resulting in Mr. Trump's first impeachment. But whatever Mr. Trump said and did, his administration often went in the other direction. This is because Mr. Trump had put Russia hawks in key positions, including Mike Pompeo as CIA director and John Bolton as national security advisor. They visited Kiev to underline their full support for secret partnership, which expanded to include more specialized training programs and the building of additional secret bases. And this is one of those dynamics where we're not exactly sure what to make of it. It's important to look at it through the good twin, evil twin lens, but the problem is Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, in many ways, seem to be anti-Trump and oppose the Trump agenda. Now a lot of people think that Mike Pompeo is a wonderful guy, an American hero. He did and said what he was asked to do and say in important moments following the 2020 stolen election, and that he will prove in the future to be that American hero. I'm totally open to that possibility. I think it's less likely with John Bolton, but I'm open to that possibility as well. Regardless, we can consider them wildcards. In the bad interpretation, Them going over to Kiev and working with those intelligence units makes it sound like they are continuing the policies and the strategies of the Obama administration. And then upon leaving, the fake president, Joe Biden, would come in and extend those same policies and strategies. But it's possible under the good interpretation of at least Pompeo and perhaps Pompeo and Bolton that they went over there and there was actually a strategic shift and they began to build out their own counterintelligence operation with Ukraine involved. Unless we are all completely and totally wrong about Donald Trump, in which case we are absolutely screwed then he would be working in direct opposition to the interests of that Obama administration and of the global regime and of those Ukrainians that we see now fully aligned with the American Uniparty. So there are some pretty significant variables here, and hopefully in the future we will know these things for sure. Now, it's funny that Entis mentions Donald Trump saying and doing different things. He'll say one thing, his administration goes in another direction. Now, is his administration subverting him, we certainly saw instances of that. We know we have the deep state, the administrative state there that intended to undermine him at every term during his first term as president. But there are other instances where Donald Trump will say something. The media will have an absolute meltdown. Make sure that that story and that one particular public understanding is baked into the cake. It is an identification factor of that given issue. And then Donald Trump will do something else and they will have to violate everything they argued in the first instance in order to explain why they're so upset at Donald Trump for doing this other thing that he has now done. That is always one of the most entertaining dynamics that Trump has given us. The base in the forest grew to include a new command center and barracks, and swelled from 80 to 800 Ukrainian intelligence officers. Preventing Russia from interfering in future U.S. elections was a top CIA priority during this period, and Ukrainian and American intelligence officers joined forces to probe the computer systems of Russia's intelligence agencies to identify operatives trying to manipulate voters. And oh, they captured so many of those. They, they found them all. There were so many, so many Russian interferers in one joint operation an HUR team duped an officer from Russia's military intelligence service into providing information that allowed the CIA to connect Russia's government to the so-called fancy bear hacking group, which had been linked to election interference in a number of countries. General Budanov, whom Mr. Zelensky tapped to lead the HUR in 2020, said of the partnership, It only strengthened. It grew systematically. The cooperation expanded to additional spheres and became more large scale. The relationship was so successful that the CIA wanted to replicate it with other European intelligence services that shared a focus in countering Russia the head of Russia House, the CIA department overseeing operations against Russia, organized a secret meeting at The Hague. There were representatives from the CIA, Britain's MI6, the HUR, the Dutch Service, a critical intelligence ally, and other agencies agreed to start pooling together more of their intelligence on Russia. The result was a secret coalition against Russia, and the Ukrainians were vital members of it. So our CIA, British intelligence MI6, Ukrainian intelligence, Dutch intelligence, and quote unquote other agencies had a secret meeting at The Hague so that the CIA could replicate its work in standing up these Ukrainian intelligence agencies, training them to, I guess, carry out terrorist attacks they wanted to replicate that throughout the rest of Europe in order to build an anti-Russian coalition. Why do they all hate Russia so much? In March, 2021, the Russian military started massing troops along the border with Ukraine. As the months passed and more troops encircled the country, the question was whether Mr. Putin was making a feint or preparing for war. That November and in the weeks that followed, the CIA and MI6, delivered a unified message to their Ukrainian partners. Russia was preparing for a full-scale invasion to decapitate the government and install a puppet in Kiev who would do the Kremlin's bidding. U.S. and British intelligence agencies had intercepts that Ukrainian intelligence agencies did not have access to, according to U.S. officials. The new intelligence listed the names of Ukrainian officials whom the Russians were planning to kill or capture, as well as the Ukrainians the Kremlin hoped to install in power. So that sounds like a target list of the important leaders on the other side. And we can go back to May 4th, 2022, in this very same outlet, the New York Times, to read the headline, U.S. intelligence is helping Ukraine kill Russian generals, officials say. And this is all about the U.S sharing targeting intelligence for assassinations by Ukrainian intelligence operatives. The only truly new part of this story is the romance in the underground base in the Ukrainian woods. President Zelensky and some of his top advisors appeared unconvinced, even after Mr. Burns, the CIA director, rushed to Kiev in January 2022 to brief them. As the Russian invasion neared, CIA and MI6 officers made final visits in Kyiv with their Ukrainian peers. One of the MI6 officers teared up in front of the Ukrainians out of concern that the Russians would kill them. At Mr. Burns' urging, a small group of CIA officers were exempted from the broader U.S. evacuation and were relocated to a hotel complex in western Ukraine they didn't want to desert their partners. After Mr. Putin launched the invasion on February 24th, 2022, the CIA officers at the hotel were the only U.S. government presence on the ground. Every day at the hotel, they met with their Ukrainian contacts to pass information. The old handcuffs were off and the Biden White House authorized spy agencies to provide intelligence support for lethal operations against Russian forces on Ukrainian soil. Wow. They really kind of buried the lead here. Joe Biden, the fake president himself, who right now is kind of in the middle of a two sided takedown attempt. The uniparty right and the uniparty left are both kind of okay with getting rid of Joe Biden, though it doesn't seem like they'll be able to. But either way, the responsibility for these lethal operations is right here being laid at the feet of the fake president himself. No more red lines. And you know, Joe Biden doesn't care about consent at all. He just goes in for a sniff and a molestation, orders a few terrorist attacks and whispers, come on, man, she was asking for it. Back to the New York Times. Often the CIA briefings contain shockingly specific details. On march third, twenty twenty two, the eighth day of the war, the CIA team gave a precise overview of Russian plans for the coming two weeks. The Russians would open a humanitarian corridor out of the besieged city of Mariupol that same day, and then open fire on the Ukrainians who used it. The Russians planned to encircle the strategic port city of Odessa, according to the CIA, but a storm delayed the assault and Russians never took the city. Then on March 10th, the Russians intended to bomb six Ukrainian cities and had already entered coordinates into cruise missiles for those strikes. Adamantis is now sharing what he calls shockingly specific details from these CIA briefings. We are talking about this small group of CIA officers who remained in Kiev stationed at this hotel in Western Ukraine. And these truly are shockingly specific details. And they're both about events that didn't happen. But here's the thing they were reported on. The fact that they might have happened, that they were supposed to happen, was reported on. They just didn't happen. And those claims are being restated here. So those claims were contained in these shockingly specific CIA briefings, but the underlying events. Described in shockingly specific detail, didn't happen, though they were reported. Here's a headline from the independent UK, March 7th, 2022, nearly two years ago. War spanning six cities. Russia's bloody invasion of Ukraine mapped out with key locations. It sounds like Adamantis is revealing. That all prior mainstream media reporting is true, despite the fact that the events described never happened. It was true, though, that the events were supposed to happen, at least according to the intelligence agencies passing off all this information to the news media. And we are supposed to pretend that all of this is real and true. The Russians were also trying to assassinate top Ukrainian officials, including Mr. Zelensky. In at least one case, the CIA shared intelligence with Ukraine's domestic agency that helped disrupt a plot against the president, according to a senior Ukrainian official. And sure enough, you go back Washington Post, March 2nd, 2022, assassination plot against Zelensky foiled and units sent to kill him destroyed, Ukraine says. Then we can cut to last year, widely reported. This is the headline from the Guardian. 7 August 2023, Zelensky assassination plot foiled by security service, says Ukraine. So again, details on an event that was supposed to happen an attack the Russians were going to be responsible for that simply never happened when the Russian assault on Kyiv had stalled. The CIA station chief rejoiced and told his Ukrainian counterparts that they were quote, punching the Russians in the face. End quote, according to a Ukrainian officer who was in the room, and oh boy, they sure did punch those Russians in the face. Within weeks, the CIA had returned to Kiev, and the agency sent in scores of new officers to help the Ukrainians. A senior U.S. official said of the CIA's sizable presence. Are they pulling triggers? No. Are they helping with targeting? Absolutely. So that means it's not our fault. The Russians, they'll understand. They'll agree with what Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes tell all the child brains in their audience. Same as how Putin believes that Joe Biden really received 81 million real, lawful American votes. If it wasn't true, our media wouldn't be allowed to say it. And because it's true, Vladimir Putin just can't deny it. Some of the CIA officers were deployed to Ukrainian bases. They reviewed lists of potential Russian targets that the Ukrainians were preparing to strike, comparing the information that the Ukrainians had with U.S. intelligence to ensure that it was accurate. Before the invasion, the CIA and MI6 had trained their Ukrainian counterparts on recruiting sources and building clandestine and partisan networks. In the southern Khursan region, which was occupied by Russians in the first weeks of the war, those partisan networks sprang into action, according to General Kondratyuk, assassinating local collaborators and helping Ukrainian forces target Russian positions. In July 2022, Ukrainian spies saw Russian convoys preparing to cross a strategic bridge across the Dnieper River and notified MI6. British and American intelligence officers then quickly verified the Ukrainian intelligence using real-time satellite imagery. MI-6 relayed the confirmation, and the Ukrainian military opened fire with rockets, destroying the convoys. At the underground bunker, General Dvoretsky said a German anti-aircraft system now defends against Russian attacks. An air filtration system, guards against chemical weapons, and a dedicated power system is available if the grid goes down. The question that some Ukrainian intelligence officers are now asking their American counterparts, as Republicans in the House weigh whether to cut off billions of dollars in aid, is whether the CIA will abandon them. It happened in Afghanistan before, and now it's going to happen in Ukraine, a senior Ukrainian officer said. Referring to Mr. Burns' visit to Kiev last week, a CIA official said, "We have demonstrated a clear commitment to Ukraine over many years, and this visit was another strong signal that the U.S. commitment will continue." The CIA and the HUR have built two other secret bases to intercept Russian communications and combined with the 12 forward operating bases which General Kondratyuk says are still operational. The H.U.R. now collects and produces more intelligence than at any time in the war, much of which it shares with the CIA. You can't get information like this anywhere except here and now, General Dvoritsky said. He knows they just can't quit him, and he probably understands that more fishing gear is already on the way. So essentially, the CIA established a presence in Ukraine in 2014 after overthrowing Ukraine's government in coordination with the U.S. State Department. And they have been there ever since training, funding and arming these little intelligence units that then carry out acts that without the guise of this being a just war on the part of the Ukrainians would be considered terrorism. And Adam Entis has just presented all of that to the American public in a romance novel about hot IC on IC action in an underground base in the Ukrainian woods. Why are they doing that? And why right now? Why right now with these funding issues on the table? Today was supposed to be the first funding deadline next week. The second. Now it has been pushed back to next week. It's March 8th and March 22nd now. But we have been in the middle of an info op for months now to manufacture consent among the American people for our illegitimate representatives in Washington, D.C., to indefinitely extend our indentured servitude and the indentured servitude of our children, our children's children, and way on down the line in order to continue funding exactly what's described in this article. This is America's role in Ukraine, at least on the behalf of the evil twin faction. I strongly believe, but absolutely cannot prove that there is a good twin faction in Ukraine as well. And I imagine that we will hear in the future about how the Trump administration helped to prop them up throughout this period. That's not the sort of thing that the media is just going to come out and talk about at this point. I just find it extraordinarily unlikely that Ukraine has no good twin faction and that everyone left in Ukraine is just an Azov battalion neo-Nazi. But we shall see about that. Now, let's get to the second piece. We're going to bookend this. And this one is not nearly as long as that New York Times piece. The New York Times piece was ridiculously long. This is from the Wall Street Journal today document from 2022 reveals Putin's punishing terms for peace. You got it? Vladimir Putin is so evil that his peace deals themselves are acts of brutality. Russian President Vladimir Putin has in recent weeks publicly hinted that he would be open to discussions to end the war in Ukraine on Moscow's terms as Kyiv's military momentum stalls. And that is really how they project this. They are trying to convince the public that there is a stalemate in Ukraine. Things are just at a standstill. Sure, Russia might have a slight advantage, but Ukraine could still win this thing. They haven't been defeated, but their momentum has stalled. The outlines of a deal the Russian leader likely wants can be seen in a draft peace treaty drawn up by Russian and Ukrainian negotiators in April 2022 about six weeks after the start of the war. Western officials and analysts say those objectives remain largely unchanged after two years of fighting. Turn Ukraine into a neutered state permanently vulnerable to Russian military aggression. Now, this is just Max Colchester of the Wall Street Journal being an unmitigated propagandist. There is nothing about Ukrainian neutrality That makes it vulnerable to Russian military aggression. It is the lack of neutrality that creates the possibility of Russian military aggression. Does it really sound like Putin's very brutal invasion was as unprovoked as they've always told us after what you just heard from the New York Times? The entire premise for this viewpoint is gone. It's nonsensical. While the broad outlines of the ultimately unsuccessful peace negotiations have been disclosed, the full 17-page document, which was reviewed by the Wall Street Journal and others familiar with the negotiations, hasn't been made public. So they got to see it. The Wall Street Journal got to see it. We're just going to have to take their word for it. The document, dated April 15th, 2022, sketches out how negotiators on both sides sought to end the fighting by agreeing to turn Ukraine into a, quote, permanently neutral state that doesn't participate in military blocs, quote, barred from rebuilding its military with Western support and leaving Crimea under de facto Russian control. Of course, Crimea is going to be under Russian control. Crimea is part of Russia. It's been part of Russia again for the last nine years, while the Kyiv regime tried to cut off their water. We just heard about how the CIA was setting up operating bases and training terrorists in Ukraine. We already knew about the bio labs. There's a long history of NATO encroachment. Of course, Russia would demand neutrality and a ceasing to the Western support of Ukraine as part of any peace negotiation. Ultimately, no deal was agreed upon. The scale of Russian war crimes in Ukraine became apparent. Ukraine's military fortunes improved and the West poured in weapons to bolster Kiev. Now, none of that's true. The deal was agreed upon. Then it got blown up at the last minute, partly with the help of the UK's own Boris Johnson. As for Russian war crimes in Ukraine, I guess we shall see in the future, but it seems like that's probably going to mostly be a problem in the other direction. Today, Ukraine says it won't start peace talks until Russia removes troops from its country. Two years of conflict have hardened Ukrainian public opinion against any kind of peace deal. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has warned that any cessation of hostilities would simply allow Russia to rearm and better attack Ukraine further down the line. Analysts say a military victory for either side looks increasingly out of reach. But again, that isn't true. Russia has already achieved the military part of the victory. This is just a negotiation from here on out, unless Ukraine ends up escalating things once again. This line of thinking is also in parallel to the situation with Israel and Palestine right now. We're told that Israel cannot have a ceasefire. They cannot stop attacking Gaza because if they do, Hamas would be able to strengthen and come back at them. So in Ukraine, Ukraine can't have a ceasefire because they're doing so well, they wouldn't want to allow the Russians to rearm and regroup. And in Gaza, Israel is actually kicking so much ass, they are dominating so hard that any let up at all and paragliding go-karts would just start dropping out of the sky again. The document shows the deep concessions negotiators on the Ukrainian side were considering as Kiev struggled in the early weeks of the war. It also serves as a reminder of the compromises that Russia might try to force Ukraine to swallow if Western military support dries up and Russia makes significant territorial gains. The draft treaty states that Ukraine, while being allowed to pursue EU membership, wouldn't be allowed to join military alliances such as NATO. No foreign weapons would be allowed on Ukrainian soil. Ukraine's military would be pared down to a specific size. Russia sought to limit everything from the number of troops and tanks to the maximum firing range of Ukrainian missiles. And it's again worth taking note of the real situation here. The U.S. government, the State Department, with intelligence agencies, all on behalf of the global regime, overthrew Ukraine's government in 2014 and then began an ethnic civil war against ethnic Russians in the eastern portion of Ukraine to make sure that their coup continued on successfully. They left the CIA there and built operating bases and trained, funded, and armed Ukrainian intelligence units to essentially carry out terrorist attacks, including on Russian soil. And the Russians are just supposed to allow them to continue this stuff indefinitely? The Russians clearly have all the leverage in this negotiation. They always have. They understand that Ukraine is a global regime proxy state. And so the propaganda mouthpieces of that global regime are trying to convince us that Ukraine is just Ukraine. It's just this country with its brave citizens protecting its very sovereign borders. They need these weapons in order to protect themselves in the future. From Russian aggression, and if they don 't have all this stuff, well Russia's just going to go take them over, except russia's not going to do that, and they say it over and over again: Are we just supposed to believe that Russia is trying to trick the global regime to pull all its assets out of Ukraine, shut down their secret bases and their bio labs? Just please leave politely and then once the regime does that, once old Vladimir Putin tricks them. He's going to go take over that entire country by force, and then he's just going to keep on going until he takes over all of Europe. It's ridiculous. Of course, a baseline fundamental agreement for a peace negotiation would be that you're no longer taking weapons from Western governments and aiming them at us. Sorry, we're not going to let you install U.S. long-range missile capabilities But let's get back to this article. The Crimean Peninsula, already occupied by Russia, would remain under Moscow's influence and not be considered neutral. Moscow also pushed for the Russian language to operate on an equal basis with Ukrainian in government and courts, a clause Kyiv hadn't signed off on, according to the draft document. So the Russophobia would remain an official part of the Ukrainian government. They would make sure that the targets of that ethnic civil war would not comfortably serve in Ukraine's government. The future of the area of eastern Ukraine covertly invaded and occupied by Russia in 2014, covertly invaded and occupied by Russia in 2014, wasn't included in the draft, leaving it up to Putin and Zelensky to complete in face-to-face talks. That meeting never took place. The treaty was to be guaranteed by foreign powers, which are listed on the document, as including the U.S., U.K., China, France, and Russia. Those countries would be given the responsibility to defend Ukraine's neutrality if the treaty was violated. But while the treaty held, guarantors would be required to, quote, terminate international treaties and agreements incompatible with the permanent neutrality of Ukraine, end quote including any promises of bilateral military aid. The international security guarantees wouldn't apply to Crimea and Sevastopol. And of course they wouldn't, because that's part of Russia. The document reflects deeply held Russian phobias that the West, led by the U.S., was for years developing Ukraine as a so-called anti-Russia, as a way to undermine, contain, and attempt to seize control of Russia. After Putin's initial attempt to take control of Kyiv and topple the government failed, the document appears to offer the next best thing, a way to cut off Western support for Kyiv. While Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan offered earlier this week to host talks anew, any renewed attempt at peace looks unlikely in the immediate future. While the front line has hardly budged for a year, Pessimism is growing about the outlook for Ukraine, with Russia recently making its first significant advance in months and Kyiv's forces running low on ammunition and manpower. Billions of dollars of U.S. funding for Ukraine is snarled in Congress. Western attention has shifted to the Middle East and polling is favorable for Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump, who has said he would broker an immediate peace deal if elected. Now, I guess that's what it means. When you say that momentum has stalled, Russia is advancing and Ukraine is running out of ammunition and manpower to normal people. That sounds like you are on the verge of complete and total annihilation. Putin told talk show host Tucker Carlson recently that he was ready to dialogue and some former Kremlin officials say they have put out feelers in recent months to explore halting the conflict along existing front lines. Again, this has been available the whole time. Putin has argued that Ukraine balked at a first chance at peace under Western pressure. At a June 17th, 2023 meeting with several African leaders, Putin displayed a document that he said had been initialed by the head of Kyiv's negotiating team. The draft, he said, had 18 articles with appendices stipulating the number of military personnel and armored vehicles. The Kyiv government, as their masters usually do, threw it all on the trash heap of history, Putin said. They rejected it. Samuel Charop, a Russian analyst at RAND, said Moscow's impulse to negotiate might wane as it sees Western aid held up and notches more advances on the battlefield. And that's the first logical thing I've read in this article. Now, there's no reason to believe that Russia will stop wanting to negotiate, but he is right to understand that Russia's leverage will continue increasing. Western officials warn that despite two years of costly fighting, Putin maintains his maximalist goals in Ukraine, which includes engineering regime change in Kyiv to ensure a state that does the Kremlin's bidding. Any such peace agreement by Ukraine, quote, leaves it at the mercy of Russia for any future repeat of the invasion. End quote, says Keir Giles, a director at the Conflict Studies Research Center a U.K. think tank. Since its initial invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea in 2014, Russia has violated more than 400 international treaties and conventions, according to the think tank Chatham House. Past ceasefires or peace treaties involving Russia in Georgia, Syria, and Ukraine have all been subsequently exploited by the Kremlin for its own gain, Giles says. The draft treaty with Ukraine included banning foreign weapons, quote, including missile weapons of any type, armed forces and formations, end quote. Moscow wanted Ukraine's armed forces capped at 85,000 troops, 342 tanks and 519 artillery pieces. Ukrainian negotiators wanted 250,000 troops, 800 tanks and 1900 artillery pieces, according to the document. Russia wanted to have the range of Ukrainian missiles capped at 40 kilometers, about 25 miles. Other issues remained outstanding. Notably, what would happen if Ukraine was attacked? Russia wanted all guarantor states to agree on a response, meaning a unified response was unlikely if Russia itself was the aggressor. In case of an attack on Ukraine, Ukrainian negotiators wanted its airspace to then be closed, which would require guarantor states to enforce a no-fly zone and the provision of weapons by the guarantors, a clause not approved by Russia. And of course, that would not be approved. What they just described was a quasi Article 5 of NATO, if Ukraine gets attacked All those countries would then have to come respond. And as long as they could blame it on Russia, their response would be against Russia. Russia could not possibly agree to that because agreeing to that would basically be like agreeing to allow Ukraine to join NATO. Russia wanted to add Belarus as a guarantor. Ukraine wanted to add Turkey. Ukrainian negotiators italicized text indicating they refused to discuss a Russian clause requesting Kyiv withdraw claims for it to come under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, which prosecutes war crimes, according to the document. They also wouldn't ratify a clause to cancel all mutual sanctions. Negotiations continued even over Zoom, but they eventually stopped altogether in June 2022. Now, this article is more clearly a limited hangout type of article. Vladimir Putin has said these negotiations have been on the table the whole time. It is true that the negotiations have been on the table at the whole time, but that was a truth that was not really incorporated into the official story within the central narrative on Russia, Ukraine. You can absolutely find reports about it. You can find reports about the negotiations. You can find reports about the terms. You can listen to Vladimir Putin Describe the terms of the negotiations from back in this period in 2022. He always had the same requirements, always. Crimea would remain Russian. The areas in the Donbass would remain independent republics. They have since voted to become part of Russia. So that situation is already worse from a Ukrainian perspective than what Putin had agreed to at the beginning. He had agreed to leave them just independent republics. Now they are part of Russia. He wanted Ukraine to be demilitarized and denazified, and he wanted to make sure they would not become part of the EU or part of NATO. And what else can be expected here? The global regime, through its proxy in Kiev, was attacking ethnic Russians in areas that the global regime considered part of Ukraine. So they were waging a proxy war. Against Russia in quote unquote their own territory and continued despite the fact that the terms of negotiation have been on the table the entire time. And now all you have to do is simply understand that all this is being done in your name. We are being told that this is a matter of national security for the United States of America, but it's not. It's a matter of the security of the global regime. And whether or not they're able to retain their stronghold in Ukraine, a hub of money laundering, bioweapons laboratories, drug trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, child sex trafficking and organ harvesting at minimum. Russia does not have to be a good guy to not want World War III started in all of our names to protect and defend that. And the problem with both these articles is that they totally ignore the responsibility of the evil twin faction in the United States for all of this. They bury the overthrow of a nation and the training, funding, and equipping of terrorist cells in that nation stood up for the purposes of waging a proxy war against a nation we're not at war with. And they bury all of that in a romance novel about hot IC on IC action in an underground base deep in the Ukrainian woods. That, my friends, is a limited hangout. Both of these are limited hangouts. But I want to mention one other possibility just before I go. Now, there's a long history over there of our evil twin faction uniparty politicians being directly involved in everything we just heard about, and some of them have not been put on blast yet. There is responsibility and accountability still to come for a lot of what we just heard. You have to wonder if this isn't a bit of a pressure campaign on certain individuals who may have been involved in these situations back then. We often analyze a limited hangout based on how it affects us and how it affects the public understanding of the actual truth about things that most of the time our government is doing. But we also have to consider that they serve as a warning shot. Hey, we've just warmed up the public. They have an idea about what was going on over there. And we could be inclined to tell them a little more. Unless, of course, you get on board with that unipartisan compromise. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'm your you can do so for as low as fifty dollars a year or five dollars a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com/slash I'm your moderator, and I'll see you soon out on the range.